From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. Good morning, everybody. It is 11.04 from a parking lot in Marlboro, Massachusetts of a courtyard by Marriott. Yes, you heard me correctly. It's trade school from a parking lot in Marlboro, Massachusetts at a courtyard by Marriott. Why, you may ask. I'm going to tell you why. I am on my way to Virginia, and normally I would have just found some place with great Wi-Fi. I would have gone in there, got myself a nice cold brew and been amped up, and we would have done trade school that way. But no, the coronavirus has ruined that. So now I'm sitting in my Jeep with my Cobra Kai t-shirt on and my hat on backwards doing trade school that way because this is what I've been reduced to, people. This is the state of... uh, of trade education in 2020 in these corona times. But I want to thank you all for joining us today for Trade School on this, the first I'm doing through my good friends at TAPA. I want to thank them so very much for being the platform uh, in which I am sharing these often kooky but always educational and fun platform um, speeches with you about American trade and global trade issues. Today in particular, we have a, a particularly fun one. Boy, are you going to have a good time. We're going to talk about global trade and how it's going to be affected by the election here in the United States. But we're not going to just talk about the presidential election. Nay, nay, my friends. We are going to talk about the Senate. We're going to talk about the Congress. We are going to have a chat about the judiciary. And we're also going to spend some time, you and I, talking about how the USTR is going to be affected, as well as other cabinet-level positions. Oh, we're going to hit it hard today. And I'm also going to give you time to ask questions. Um, We should really get some things out in the open, though, as we talk about this today. The first is I'm not a lawyer. So as we begin to discuss things like the 301 case today, let's just, you know, remember that I I did not go to law school or pass the bar exam. Um, I'm far too exciting and fun for that. So if you have questions about the law, um, I know attorneys, you know attorneys, we should probably go and speak with them. Second of all, when it comes to the questions section today, and uh, when we get to the point where I take questions, this is not going to turn into your Facebook feed or Twitter. I've worked very hard these past two years to not turn trade school into a uh, free-for-all where we just yell and scream at one another about politics, and I'm not going to let that happen here today. So um, like Bob Dylan said, be groovy or leave, man. Let's, um, Let's be cool and respectful to one another. I am not going to be partisan today. I'm not going to get into any of that. We're just going to stick to the facts because like I'm often uh, quoted as saying, I'm not a senator or a congressman. I'm not the president. We are not the USTR or members of the Department of Commerce. We really can't change anything, right? So since we can't change anything, let's talk about how we'll deal with it if it were to happen. Let's just stick to the facts and how we'll manage things given the fact the fact uh, pattern. So um, I just want that to sink in. And please keep that in mind as you ask questions or make comments. This is not the time to start uh, arguments with everyone. Let's just be cool, okay? That's what really makes trade school so so interesting for people is that we can keep it cool. So the agenda today is um, talking about what's at stake with these elections with regards to trade and the global economy. We'll also get into the roles of the Senate and Congress in trade and, and why they're less important these days and how that really happened. We'll talk about the roles of the USTR and commerce and why the presidency is such an important part of of their lives. We'll talk about the courts, where each one of these candidates stands right now, and we'll get into global issues in trade. 
The last thing we'll talk about is the coronavirus and how the response of, of these particular candidates and the parties they represent may actually affect logistics. So really gonna keep it tight today. Probably gonna try to get done in about 40 minutes. So there'll be plenty of time for conversation and for input. And as always, if you wanna keep the conversation going, I am on LinkedIn. You can always hit me up there. I do post a lot of commentary and you can always hit me up on Twitter at TradeGeek. So like Marvin Gaye said, let's get it on and get right to it. There's a lot going Um I have been following elections since I was a, a wee boy. I've always found them to be a, a, an interesting blood sport. This one in particular in 2020, from a professional perspective, is probably the most interesting I've ever had. We're engaged in a number of trade wars. There's the obvious one with China, but there's the quieter one with Europe. We, we were also kind of in the middle of something with India. We have been poking the bear with Brazil for some time. Uh, people haven't been paying much attention to this, but we've been quietly working with Vietnam and Cambodia to try to get something done there. And we just completed a negotiation with Japan. So although a lot of people feel like we've kind of ab abandoned a lot of the things that were done during the Obama administration, there's been a lot of action that's actually been happening during the Trump administration. And uh, you know, this pandemic has changed the attitudes, not only of the government, but of all of us in the trade about what we expect to take place in a supply chain to make it resilient. And this next election is going to, once and for all probably, force our president and ourselves and our government to decide what it means to have a strong economy linked to a strong supply chain that can be depended upon in very particular product types. So when we make that decision, it's going to get backed up with money. Because let's face it, that's really what this government is doing. It's, it's making decisions, creating a pathway, and then funding that pathway. And it's the Congress's job to fund it. It's the president's job to sign that into law. And also, if we have a new president, we'll have new leadership at every level. We'll have a new head of the DHS. We'll have a new head of... of uh, of commerce, we'll have a new USTR. We could have a lot of new heads of a lot of different areas. And, and with that new leadership, new attitudes about how we're going to go after this, you know, how we're going to manage these issues of trade. There's a lot at stake. Here's the thing, though very few people are talking about this stuff. If you listen to the rhetoric of politics right now, is anybody really talking about the global economy and how the presidential election or or the, or the down ballot elections are really going to affect the global economy or global trade? No, this is not something really in the front of mind of people in America. Not most. I mean, it is to us, but, but we live this stuff. And, and more, more of that beyond that, really right now, international relations and the stability of global international relations is really not on people's minds either. More domestic issues and things at home, Certainly the pandemic, certainly civil unrest, law and order are really a top of mind, as well as issues of social responsibility at home are mostly a top of mind. So this has kind of taken a back seat, but both candidates and many members of Senate and the Congress have very strong opinions about how this should take place going forward. And they will have an impact on our lives as trade professionals. So let's start with the obvious one that no one talks enough about. And that's the role of the Senate and Congress in trade. Until the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, and I swear 
to Almighty Thor, if I die and go to heaven, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to find Smoot and Holly, and I'm going to smack him in the mouth for, for the Smoot-Holly Terror Fact. The Smoot-Holly Terror Fact turned what had been a relatively quiet global trade world into a complete and utter, you know, just pig fight when they made tariffs in America absolutely ungodly. And in doing so, made it very difficult to import product into America, which wrecked our economy and meant that, that you know, companies and countries and people overseas didn't have money to buy American exports, which in turn sent the entire global economy on its head. So when that happened, the world, the U.S. decided, well, maybe we shouldn't give Congress so much say here when it comes to trade. Maybe that should be more of a presidential thing. And that's kind of how it happened. Up until the 30s, Congress was doing all that work. They, they kind of just sort of gave to the president to do it. But that's how it happens over decades and decades and decades. Instead, what happened is the president began to negotiate these things. And while negotiating them had the power of the Senate and the Congress through something called fast track to go and negotiate, knowing that if he brought something to Congress, that Congress would simply approve something that he brought back. Fast track is a very important tool that the president gets, but this president doesn't have it. What it essentially says, you go off, Mr. President or Mrs. President, as the case may be, and you go negotiate on our behalf, and whatever you bring back will give an up or down vote. We won't make any changes to it. We won't demand that you make any wholesale changes to it. We'll simply vote on it as it occurs. And that's really important because when you have hundreds of people representing hundreds of different interests and hundreds of different constituencies, they're going to have things that they want to see because that's going to represent them. I mean, think about all the people on this call, right? I have a very different um, you know, political needs and backgrounds from the way I grew up. I grew up in a in a crappy little dusty town in West Texas. And there are people here that grew up in cities, people here that grew up on the coast of Florida, people that grew up in towns in California, people that grew up in the Midwest and like Chicago and Wisconsin. We've all got things that we grew up with that we want that are different. So if a trade bill came, me growing up, you know, if I still live where I came from, I care, I'm gonna care about agriculture. I'm gonna care about what it means for cattle exports, for, for beef exports. I'm gonna care about probably hindering the exports of agriculture from other countries into the US. I'm gonna worry about manufacturing, you know, as opposed to people from big cities who are probably gonna be concerned about financial opportunities and finance, being able to, um, you know, critical infrastructure opportunities. Um, fisheries for people in New England, you know, it's a lot of things that are very specific. So this allows the president to say, okay, I know all of you have something that you really want to see, but we're not going to get caught in, in, in the quagmire here. Instead, you're going to trust me to try to argue the best I can for these things, and then we'll vote on an up or down, all right? Now, something else that happens is the president will appoint members of his or her cabinet that do the lion's share of the work. I'm talking the heavy lifting with regards to trade. And these are unsung heroes. Say what you will about the job of the United States trade representative, which is essentially an ambassador for trade or of the Department of Commerce. But those two people still have to be approved by the members of Congress. You know, the, these, these folks are, are approved by a review by these folks that are elected by us to go to Washington. And that's something that used to be done pretty simply. You know, they 
they kind of go from office to office shaking hands. It seems like a good person. You know, I heard from my colleague so-and-so from Texas that you're a nice person. Um, uh, you guys went to college together. Or you knew so-and-so. And I read your paper um, when you were at Notre Dame about this. You seem like an excellent person that would fit the bill, right? But now it's become more of a political ping pong ball where they're demanding people speak under oath or um, it, it's just gotten more complicated and more difficult. So um, these appointees are becoming tools for, for political discourse, certainly the USTR and certainly the Department of Commerce. Now the USTR and the Department of Commerce are nominated by a president. And as, as I said, they are weaponized, particularly by Mr. Trump for a long time they weren't used that way. The USTR was a tool for the creation of commercial opportunities, as was the, the Secretary of Commerce. They were there to try to protect commercial interests. They were more of a passive tool by the government. That has not been the case under Mr. Trump. He has um, sort, of, sort of reinvigorated the idea that these particular um, heads of his government should be actively engaged and um, working as the head of the spear for more um, intense, more aggressive policies overseas. And it has been applauded by many people um, on, on the right and um, certainly booed by many people on the left. Um, you know, one of my favorite Kissinger lines is the reason that foreign policy takes so much time is because if you insult someone, that insult can take centuries. But in a world where we have a 24 hour news cycle, everything that happens happens quickly and is reported quickly. So, you know, this isn't back in the days when news of what was going on in trade negotiations would come a month later on a steamship. It's very, very different now. So the um, direction and the tenor that the president takes and gives to his USTR and his Department of Commerce, they're generally in lockstep. They have to work very, very closely together. And the Secretary of the Treasury is normally involved in this as well. These are all people that are appointed by the president, approved by the Congress. And you will see, I have a feeling, even if Mr. Biden is, is not is elected president, you're going to see the same thing in his presidency. You're going to see a USTR, a SECCOM, and certainly, certainly uh, Department of Treasury, uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury, who are working in lockstep to create probably a softer attitude on trying to, if nothing else, negotiate a, um, a softer landing for what's going on with China. But bear in mind, this has to be approved by a Congress and the Senate. The courts are far too often overlooked. Now, I know many of you are single. Um, some of you have uh, wonderful spouses in your life. I applaud you, good for you. Um, when, you're, when you're out tonight having a cocktail, or when you're, um, you know, with your children tonight, and you've you've just ran out of things to talk about, I want you to start talking about the Court of International Trade. Oh, you heard me. Oh yeah, no, this is this is the topic that's going to absolutely seal the deal for a second date for you, folks. Um, no one talks enough about the Court of International Trade, and there's a reason for it. It's because it is painfully boring as a topic. I'm I'm not kidding. This is. This is one of those things that even I can't believe I had to learn about, but there are nine judges on this panel. They get the job for life. And dig this. There are two open slots on it right now. And there have been for a long time because two of these people have died and we haven't replaced them because President Trump can't get those vacancies approved 
by 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 the uh, contract now. He's put two people on. He's trying to put two more on it. There were people that were on it from Reagan's days when President Obama was on. I mean, these folks linger. They live a long time. But these folks have unbelievable power. They have extraterritorial responsibilities to determine how America's, um, you know, you know, American companies are being treated with regards to trade. They are hardcore. Um, right now, the, the 301 issue. So if you're importing goods and your company paid uh, these 301 Chinese tariffs that Mr. Trump put in place, they've had a court case put in front of them that's saying that these tariffs were not done properly or were not fairly levied. And they could all be thrown out, like literally thrown out. There could be refunds given to companies that have done a Me Too on this lawsuit. And to get in on the court case is like three to five grand. And if you if they win, it's not that much more to get you all of your refunds. This is like a, a low threshold court case. And there's right now seven people sitting on this court that nobody knows about that could effectively determine the refunds of billions and billions and billions of dollars. And I bet that unless you Googled them, none of you know their names. Some of the most powerful people in American business right now who could be sending business saving refunds to small businesses all over the country and nobody knows their names. I do, but I'm weird. Um, and nobody knows their names. And more importantly, here's this life-saving court case that costs next to nothing to be in. And I think as of this morning, there are only 3,700 companies have jumped in on it. And that's ridiculous. But this, this court has incredible power. Who puts people on this court? The president. And odds are, just like any, any judge, they'll be more liberal if Mr. Biden gets to put the last two on it. They'll be much more conservative if Mr. Trump does. And here's the, here's the thing, guys. There's probably two of the justices that are currently on this court that are likely to, uh, gosh, how do you put this delicately, that are likely to no longer have their job at some point during the next term, given the seniority um, themselves on the court. So pretty big deal. Now, where each candidate currently stands, Mr. Biden, there's more to talk about because, you know, he hasn't had the job for four years. Mr. Trump's is pretty easy to understand. You guys have been living through it. Um, Mr. Biden has said again and again, the guiding principle is foreign policy for the middle class. So whenever you read guiding principle documents about trade policy, about foreign policy, foreign policy for the middle class. So driving decisions about what happens outside of the US for the middle class. Here's what you're not gonna hear a lot about from Mr. Biden in his campaign speeches. Not a lot about foreign policy, not a lot about um, projection of power, not a lot about those things because American voters right now are extremely myopic. We're very concerned about things that are happening at home. And I, I think we can all agree with good reason. Things are a little wacky here right now. Um, he's made it clear that before he would ever talk to foreign countries about any kind of new FTA, he wants to see things in there that reflect the desires and needs and wishes of labor unions and environmental leaders. So he'll want to see specific language in a new trade agreement that addresses things like um, environmental policy, green energy initiatives, being concerned about land use, and certainly labor and fair standards for labor. Now, before anybody loses their mind about that, bear in mind that when we were negotiating um, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this was all done 
uh, in the TPP that we were very close to being a member of before Mr. Trump came into office. So, you know, Mr. Obama and uh, the USTR before this one had done extensive work to make sure that issues like slave labor, issues like um, environmental policy have been addressed in the TPP. And this had become an important part of how America was negotiating our standards for free trade agreements. This is really nothing new. It's more of a throwback to what had been going on four years ago. And for more conservative voters that may not be very, um, that might not be something that they would embrace. So um, here's something that's interesting though, is that Mr. Biden still, quote unquote, and this is from his policy documents, guys, this is not me paraphrasing, unashamedly embraces a US-led rules-based international order with an emphasis, emphasis on reducing trade barriers and setting global trade standards. So this is nothing that is really all that different from, Mr., from what Mr. Trump, President Trump has always, always espoused to, which is the US should be leading trade negotiations. The US should be in the front seat of any conversation with regards to trade liberalization. We should be the ones that are out there managing this conversation. We should not be the second party to it. If there is something to be said for liberalizing global trade, we should be the one in the front seat. So that, that he's made it very clear in his conversation. Um, the third one is, um, is something that I think you'll hear a lot of. So we've, we've always said that we wanted something about China. And Mr. Trump did something about China and um, everyone's a critic, right? No one likes what anyone does. They've always, they always say that it could have been done better, but very few people have come out publicly. There are people who have, and that should be made very clear. But very few people have come out and said, here's what I would have done instead of what Mr. Trump did. So what Mr. Biden has said is China should be held accountable for the things that they have done. So he's not disagreeing that China has been a negative actor in regards to global trade, but he doesn't agree with the way that Mr. Trump did it. So he does not agree with the trade war. He does not agree with the 301 tariffs. What he says is instead of the US you know, going out there, rolling up our sleeves and getting into a fist fight with China, what he would have, what he, what he would have preferred to have seen is a coalition of countries confronting China. So the fact that America bore the brunt of the trade war alone is unsatisfactory in his opinion. What he would do in the future, if given the opportunity, is to create a coalition of countries whom together would face China and, and work on China and their unfair trade policies together to try to do a better job than what had been done by Mr. Trump. I'm not sure that you can you know, unscramble this egg at this point. This um, this idea of a coalition was something that had been floated in the Trump White House. I do not know why it had not been done. I'm sure there are reasons for it. I don't know if we're too far down the road to use a coalition at this point. I can tell you that many countries, particularly India, Japan, and members of the European Union, were thankful that the U.S. went out and took it on the chin for everybody else with this one. Um, between coronavirus, though, and the ensuing global downturn, I don't know how much of that, um, you know, that fight that we took on is going to endure uh, unless President Trump continues that fight. So we'll, you know, we'll see. But this idea of a coalition is an interesting one. I'm not sure how effective it can be since we already kind of started this fight. But, we'll, you know, we'll see. I'm not ruling it out. I, you know, I don't know.
more Mr. Biden. Um, he likes to, President Trump, he sees trade rules as a useful tool in our arsenal. In other words, he's a fan of tariffs. I've said it once, I'll say it again, I'll probably say it 100,000 times before this election is over. If you think these 301 tariffs are going to suddenly disappear if Mr. Biden wins in November, I need whatever you're smoking. Whatever kind of mushrooms you're putting in on your pizza, I want them too. It ain't happening. The Democrats have been a big fan of using tariffs to try to level the playing field with China for a long time. It was Republicans who stood in their way. So the fact that Republicans decided to use tariffs to try to even playing field with China is in line with what Democrats have always wanted. And it's actually a big part of how the GOP has managed to sway the voter voting block of, of a lot of labor unions over the course of the past four years. I think you're going to see these in place for time, regardless of who wins. I think that the, um, the resolution of the problem between the two countries is really going to be uh, just longer if Mr. Trump is in office as opposed to Mr. Biden. Uh, Vice President Biden really believes that we should be a rule setter and in multilateral co coalitions to pressure bad actors, not just China. So one thing he has made clear is this idea of a coalition is not something he would simply use on China, but on other countries as well when it comes to trade, to try to um, try to encourage people, right? try to encourage countries like Iran, try to encourage countries like North Korea to do better things by inducing trade, so use a carrot instead of a stick. So instead of saying, we're not going to let you sell oil anywhere, how about we'll buy your oil instead if you decide to do X, Y, and Z? Um, you know, the answer is to this threat is more openness, not less, more friendships, more cooperation, more alliances, more democracy. Everyone ride on the peace train. Ooh, ah, ee, ah, ooh, ah. You know, so um, it's an interesting attitude. Um, I don't know if it'll work or not. What do I know? I'm just a failed stand-up comedian with a broker's license and access to the internet. So what do I know? It, um, it should be said, though, that if you look at polling numbers and you look at likely voters for Mr. Biden versus likely voters for Mr. Trump, the issues of trade, international relations, and the global economy are all at the lower, lower, lower quadrant of what they are interested in. They are still very low on Mr. Trump's, but they're higher. So the the questions of trade, international relations, they're, they're really, you know, although they're on the radar, they're just not as important right now. Social issues are significantly more important to the voters on the left, and they're just not being focused on Pardon me, uh, trade issues are just not being focused on. So you're probably only going to hear them if they're called out on during debates and the such, just not going to be something they focus on. I think it'll be something that you'll hear more clarity about if you were to be elected. So not going to see a lot of real focused attitudes by, by Mr. Biden. I will tell you that as an outsider looking in who does feel rather connected with DC, I think that if the left were to win this election, and if the left were to have, we're, we're able to overcome the Senate gridlock. There, there is a, there's a possibility that the left could, could come out of this with the Senate and the Congress and the presidency. It is a possibility that you will see President Biden work very hard to um, 
find some resolution to the Chinese trade war within 18 to 24 months. I believe that if President Trump were to win, regardless of the situation with the Senate, that he will drag on the trade war until the very last um, embers of, of his presidency in order to get the absolute most. I also believe this has a lot to do with the pandemic. I think that the longer the Chinese are suffering from a global economic downturn, the more leverage the United States has to negotiate that trade war. Um, I think that for Mr. Biden, anything that he can do to bring some sort of stability to the global economy will be to the benefit of, of his legacy. I think, Mr. Trump, a win is more important than stability. Um, a long-term win is more important than short-term short -term stability. Okay, so speaking of Mr. Trump, much easier, guys, to talk about. Um, you know, he's probably going to continue to use the weaponization of tariffs in order to achieve his goal of leveling trade imbalances, which is essentially what he's been doing for the past couple of years. Um, you know, the threat of not being able to sell your goods in the United States at the same cost as you could three and a half years ago is a pretty ugly threat. The, you know, I'm going to hit you with a duty that's going to make your product 15, seven and a half, 25 percent more expensive to the world's largest economy. That's terrifying to a Chinese company. And that definitely gets people's attention, particularly when you know China's dealing with a, with a credit crisis, when they are dealing with a downturn in their economy, when there are questions about their global economy right now. That, that definitely gets people's attention. It's not just China, folks. I mean, the European Union also had some problems with the US with regards to aviation. So um, if he were to win, he'll see it as a mandate to just continue on with no mercy and to continue to try to get America as we reach our apex is the world's largest economy and probably start a decline in the next 25 to 50 years to get all that we can with regards to trade agreements now while we're in the best situation to vote to to get use our leverage to get the best possible agreements so that American agenda um, of this America first agenda is going to absolutely be where we negotiate from. You're going to see more bilateral deals. So negotiating one, one on one with other countries rather than multilateral deals is certainly going to be the way we go. He'll try to get a phase two deal with China that deals with cyber theft. It deals with um, getting them to buy more American agriculture, more American automotive, opening up more to financial services companies, and then probably a phase three deal with China, which will have uh, duty-free treatment of American goods and Chinese goods. I think ultimately that would be the big win um, out of this whole argument, and it would certainly uh, bring peace between the two countries for a very long time. You'll also see a great push in the first 24 months of a Trump administration for an Indian, Brazilian, Vietnamese, and Cambodian free trade agreement. And you'll also see focus. The EU will have no choice but to come to the table and try to negotiate away from this trade war with the U.S. Because um, they will touch the third rail. Either we or Europe will touch the third rail of going after automotive. And you're going to see a political push for useful export commodities. So the, um, the White House will definitely try to push more agriculture more agricultural export agreements and deals with all of these countries, the European Union, India, Brazil, Vietnam, Cambodia, China, to buy more agriculture, buy more um, aerospace, buy more automotive, um, more high electronics computing. So you're going to see more of that coming out of the White House to be being pushed to have more of these countries buy those strategically from the U.S. because they are politically um, very, very useful for this White House.
you know, what do I really see as the difference between these two? I see that um, if President Trump is to win, he's going to see this as a mandate, as I said, to really not take the foot off the accelerator and to continue to push China um, to get where we want to be, you know, as hopefully the coronavirus becomes less and less of a day-to-day impact, we hope, on our, on our daily lives as a vaccine becomes prevalent in our society and get back to negotiating with China and back to negotiating better deals with other countries and hopefully, you know, walking away from uh, the presidency, knowing that we have more global deals. Whereas a Biden presidency will probably try to tie these up, probably try to find a way to get these behind us and focus more on social issues, which are really the driving standard for his party right now, trying to find ways to um, you know, push these forward and, and, and make the things that are important to his, his core voters, you know, make those things really front and center in his presidency, while also focusing in a meaningful way to get these things behind America, um, get them tied up and, and finish as quickly as possible. Again, that's just one guy's opinion. Really big issues in global trade that we we cannot not look at from a presidential standpoint. So China trying to understand their place both regionally and in the world. China has gotten very, very aggressive in acting the Asia-Pacific region. America has not been. I believe that if Mr. Biden were to become president, you will see more American outreach, more American, um, more aggressive American uh, insight and input into those Asian regions being more engaged when it comes to trade and commerce and sort of flexing our muscles there as opposed to just negotiating one-on-one. Brexit, Mr. Biden will probably not support a Brexit as aggressively as Mr. Trump has. Um, You will probably not see the United States go so far as to, you know, openly flout the fact that we are negotiating in good faith a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom uh, as Mr. Trump has. So again, where the president goes, where the presidency goes, this will have a major effect on um, on how the U.S. agrees or disagrees to deal with the Brexit outcome. Japan, um, Mr. Trump negotiated a free trade agreement with Japan. And Japan, as you know, is part of the TPP. Mr. Biden has made it clear he'd like to see us sort of re-engage with the TPP. Well, it would make this free trade agreement, which was very positive for the U.S., kind of pointless. The North-South Korea issue. Our South Korean ally has been very happy with what we have done with North Korea. Um, I don't know if we would continue to be as focused on dealing with that region of the world if uh, Mr. Biden were to win or lose. Brazil and South America, as you know, Brazil is between the pandemic and their economic issues in a bit of a free fall right now. Uh, We have not, as a nation state, been very focused on that. Um, We have not been focused on helping. I don't know that if either one of these presidents would really put a lot of time and effort into managing that situation. And of course, the impact of the pandemic on energy. Um, President Trump has been a big fan and a big supporter of more traditional energy sources, oil, coal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. fracking shale, all that good stuff. Mr. Biden has made, made a clear number of different um, uh, political policies, speeches, working papers, white papers, through the use of his subordinates, et cetera. Things like he would like to see us stop drilling offshore. He's made it clear that he would, he would stop drilling oil offshore if he were president. I don't believe that. Um, there was an estimate that came out yesterday that it would cost a million jobs and $100 billion to the U.S. economy if he were to do that. But 
you know, let's say that he did, um, you know, move towards green, greener economies, uh, moves towards banning gasoline engines by 2050, those sorts of things. Very different. Um, and when you look at the pandemic and how low energy prices had gone and, and what that means to energy companies, there's going to need to be leadership from Washington on helping these very large, very important companies that things like our military and our global infrastructure are, require in order to maintain. And I think who the president is, is probably going to have a big part on how we support those companies. Um, and then lastly, uh, before we get into these, the questions and answers folks, big, uh, big slide here, got a lot to unpack. So give me a minute, but you're gonna have a national stockpile created. I know a lot of people that are in TAPA and certainly a lot of the clients that have been following me for all these years, you guys are involved in the medical field and you're also involved in security. All right, so you're gonna see a bill come from somebody. I think there's something like 14 different bills that are floating around DC right now that are being drafted and talked about amongst colleagues to have a bill come out between the Senate and the Congress of a national stockpile for PPE and other emergency you know, medical support devices and stuff that we will have on hand for the next pandemic. A lot of money is gonna be spent on buying, procuring, distributing, and warehousing this product. Um, I think how that gets done and how it gets resourced, a lot of that is gonna be determined by both the Congress and by the president. And I think that in whose hands that's determined, if it's more of a civil, civilian way of being done, if it ends up in the hands of health services or the military, I think you're gonna, you know, you're gonna see some interesting conversations about how that gets managed. How do we deal with future lockdowns? You know, the next time somebody gets off a plane with the sniffles, are we going to manage the lockdown any different? This is, um, again, you know, this will not be a Facebook and Twitter feed. I don't know how the lockdown should have been handled. And unless one of you has a PhD in public health, I don't think you really know the best way either. You might have your own way, even if you have that PhD. Every country around the world has been playing this, this, you know, this game. There is no zero-sum game of right or wrong. It seems that no matter which direction we went, there was a whole lot of bad. Hopefully you've learned something from this and how we deal with lockdowns. But I think there's going to be a, a playbook that comes out. And whomever the next chief executive of this country is, is going to build that playbook. And Congress and the cabinet of the White House is going to compile that playbook and it's going to go up on a shelf. And the next time we have a problem like this, that playbook's going to come down and it's going to be a public. Record. And we're going to understand how we're going to react as a country. That's a lot of power in the hands of a couple of people, folks, and you're about to vote for him. Actually, historically, half of you on this call are probably not going to vote for him. So uh, a small percentage of us are going to vote for him. Air travel and air cargo, um, as all of you have been following in the air, air industry, air cargo is on a squeeze because so few passengers are flying around the world. And many of these air carriers are are in real trouble because they don't have anybody to move their goods. Um, there aren't people in these aircraft. It's just, you know, it's bad news all around. Um, how long will this squeeze go on? 
at what point will the government make the decision to do a bailout and how will that bailout be managed? Is it still going to be the situation where the U.S. government is going to take shares in these companies um, and expect to be paid back for those dividends? But do we have capacity right now to deal with um, this cold chain and Operation Warp Speed to get the vaccines we need to be, to export them around the world? What will this mean for the rest of air cargo and our needs? Can the government keep it running? Will we end up traveling again fast enough to get this side of logistics working? And which, you know, which presidential candidate is going to react in a way that will likely support bailouts with both? Is this a, um, I think likely they both are, they both would look at this as an industry that requires American governmental support. And I think automation is something else you're going to see, uh, you know, attitudes about the Congress and the president being important too. Will Congress fund research of automation in the supply chain, in manufacturing, robotics, are going to become an important part of American life because they don't get sick and pandemics don't really bother them. You're already beginning to see the rustlings of it, of more talks of how we use automation to avoid problems like this in the future in key industries. Con and the president are going to get the tap on the back about funding a great deal of cybersecurity research, testing, and trying to understand how to make a more resilient country with it. So which one of these presidents is going to be more likely to really invest in that kind of stuff? And then the big bullet point, are either of these gentlemen more likely to put hundreds of billions over the course of four to eight to 10 to 20 years into constantly researching better vaccines? So the next time this happens, we've got something in the hopper that we're even closer than we are now to having a vaccine ready. Is that something we've even talked about? Is that likely to be discussed in the future? These are the big questions with regards to our industry because having a vaccine ready is an important part of going back to that cold chain conversation. If we have a vaccine that we can knock out in two months instead of six or eight, imagine what that does to a supply chain that's already stockpiling food that already doesn't have drivers. This, this puts a wrench in it even faster. So yeah, this is an important election for a lot of reasons, but it's an incredibly important election because of our industry. And unfortunately, they're very divergent paths depending on who wins, just from the outside looking in. And I don't know if one over the other really has an answer for which way you know, is better. I, I'm, not, I'm not a person who knows what is better. I always vote for libertarians anyway. Uh, you know, we'll take questions right now, um, but if you have any, any problems, any questions, if you want more information, you can always reach out to me. For those of you who did pay 301 tariffs or your company did, please reach out so I can get you in that court case.